magicians. So we're going to do something so much fun today. Has anybody been to this before? Couple people. Okay, so the handout is not available yet because you could look up the answer. That's not going to happen. So we're going to play Jeopardy, and my trusty assistants, um, and they have both trained with me, and the one in red is my baby, so we have to be nice to her. Um, we are going to play Jeopardy. So when you say I'll take um, Path of Fizz for 200, Alex, that really is her name, Alex, so that works out well. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're not playing on team. None of us have anything to disclose, well, at least relative to this presentation. Uh, we're going to talk about five different categories, which I'll show you in just a moment. And here they are, pain, neurophysiology, analgesic pharmacology, monitoring, my favorite category, conversions, titrations, and breakthrough, oh my, and pain terminology. And it goes from 100 to 500. So you pick which one you want to do. And then one of my trusty assistants will run over and give you the mic. I give you the answer. You give us the question. If you get it right, you, my little chicken, will get a $5 Amazon gift card. How awesome is that? Who doesn't love Amazon? If I don't order from Amazon every day, they call me to make sure I'm okay. <laughs> so who would like to kick us off? Let's not be shy. Oh, on the aisle here. Which category do you want? I will say pain terminology for 100. Pain term for 100. Let's see if I can get it. A neuron conducting impulses inward to the brain or spinal cord. Nope. Drawing a blank. Cortisol is taking effect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the question is, what is an afferent neuron? So, Alex, I think this one's yours. Yes, yeah, so... Afferent or sensory neurons receive information from the outside, so the sensory receptors, and send them to the other neurons so the body can produce some sort of a response. The efferent neurons or the motor neurons receive information from other neurons and send that information to effectors, so things like muscles, glands, and then they thereby produce a response. And that's all shown if you're a visual learner in that fairly small picture at the bottom. But the slides will be posted right after yeah. the session. All right, let's take somebody from Jessica's side. Somebody over here. And, you know, this is how I teach 200 pharmacy students at one time. I'll call on them. I'll say, you really want to volunteer because she would think. If you're wearing a bright-colored shirt, you're not in a good spot. Anybody wearing red today? You're a marked woman. Oh, pain terminology 200. Pain terminology for 200. Painful response to what should normally be a non-painful stimuli. What is allodynia? What is allodynia, she says. Wow, we got our first big winner. Yeah, and here you go. So, yes, allodynia would be when something that shouldn't be painful, like putting on clothes, all of a sudden becomes painful, or sheets on the bed, touching your skin, becomes painful, um, and that can be a sign of, of something not quite right. The other, the other important term here to remember is hyperalgesia, which just means what did cause you pain before at a certain level, it actually would take less than that now and your pain, so you're kind of hypersensitive to the pain. So two different, two different words here that are important to be aware of. And then you can see, you know, we, we like to throw in pictures so you can see how the, the threshold changes there on the graph. Yeah. It's an awesome, uh, it's very interesting, the pathophysiology of allodynia, how, you know, the neuron ends up in a certain laminate of the spinal cord, and instead of ending up where we perceive pain, it ends up where touch is perceived. The touch one ends up being uh, in the area where you would perceive pain. So that's pretty interesting. Not much fun for the patient, but... 
All right. I saw a hand up in the back somewhere. Back row. There we go. Young lady over there. Just got it. What category do you want? Conversions for 100, my favorite, favorite category. Increase the dose of extended release oxycodone as opposed to decreasing the dosing interval with this type of breakthrough pain. So remember, there's three types of breakthrough pain. Which of the three would your strategy be to try first to increase the dose of the long-acting opioid as opposed to shortening the dosing interval? Any thoughts? One sec. Don't give it away, dude. She's trying to get, get it still. No, wait. Hold, hold your thunder there, dude. I I know you would, but we tried this first instead. You got anything? I cannot think this okay. early. Does somebody it's else early. want to try it around her? Okay, over here. Oh, you just did one. One per customer. Let's, let's exhaust <laughs> the audience. Somebody else back there by Jessica. Anybody want to try it? Nobody wants to try Wow, Jessica. Can we give her, can oh, we we give her there. the three choices? Alex, okay. over there. Alex has it. I'm on the move. They get their steps in in this session. What is in the dose failure? Look at you. What is end of dose failure? Very good. Awesome. All right, so when you think about it, you know, breakthrough pain is where you have controlled, pretty much, the persistent pain. And then we have several types of breakthrough pain. So breakthrough pain can be sudden and unpredictable, um, but it may be predictable also. Uh, it can last from seconds to a few hours. Some people can have 3,000 episodes of breakthrough pain in a day. It can be sharp shooting, radiating, so lots of different presentations. So um, you've got your around-the-clock med, you've got your breakthrough pain medication. So the types, and this is what I was getting at, is there's incident pain. So incident pain can be volitional or non-volitional. So incident pain is, in, it, the pain happens in response to something the patient does or somebody does something to the patient. So it could be a hospice patient and when the nurse comes to do wound care, wow, that really makes it worse. It could be an ambulatory patient who goes through PT and that really brings the pain on. Um, so it could be, as I said, volitional where it's under somebody's control to do it or not do it, but it could be non-volitional incident pain. Like no hospice patient's ever going to say, you know what, I've thought about it and I'm not having any more bladder spasms because I just don't like how that makes me feel. Then we have idiopathic pain where it's like I'm just sitting here minding my own beeswax and boom, out of the blue comes the pain. And a lot of idiopathic breakthrough pain is neuropathic. And then there's this end of dose failure where you know the drug, the long-acting drug is just not lasting the usual dosing interval. So we do know that about 20% of people in transdermal fentanyl can't last 72 hours, so we have to always go to Q48. And we see that with the oxycontins and the MS contins of the world that maybe they don't last 12 hours. So my strategy, though, would be preferably to increase the dose of the long-acting, uh, trying to keep the dosing interval maximized as best we can. All righty, who's up next? I have a volunteer on this side. Okay. I just have to get there quickly. Analgesic Pharmacology 100. Okay. This non-opioid analgesic has, a non-opioid agent has analgesic and antipyretic properties, but no anti-inflammatory. Acetaminophen. Look at you. Very good. Yay. So we know that the big thing that we're concerned about, even though generally speaking acetaminophen is fairly well tolerated, the big thing that we're concerned about is with unintentional overdoses, and that is acute liver failure. So 
Acute liver failure, the rapid development of severe acute liver injury with corresponding impaired synthetic abilities, so ability to make proteins and coagulation factors, and the development of encephalopathy. So in order to understand why that happens, it's important to very briefly take a look at the metabolism of acetaminophen. So acetaminophen is metabolized through three separate pathways. So about 40 to 65% is metabolized through glucuronidation. Another 20 to 40% or so is metabolized through sulfation. And then the one that we really care about, the remainder, is through N-hydroxylation. So this is where acetaminophen is metabolized to this highly reactive intermediate called NAPKI, or N-acetyl-P-benzoquinonamine, NAPKI. Cute little name for a very uh, not good intermediate. So what normally happens under normal circumstances, not in instances of acute overdose, is that this NAPKI combines with glutathione and is excreted, no harm, no foul. But in instances of acute overdose, these pathways become saturated and the glutathione stores are depleted. So there's no glutathione to combine with this NAPKI and get it the heck out of the system. So in that case, the glutathione stores increase, which is toxic to the body and results in liver failure. So potential drug-drug or drug-disease interactions we would want to think about make sense when you take a look at those three metabolic pathways. So glucuronidation, sulfation, the CYP enzymes that can be involved, 2E1, 1A2, and 3A4, and then again that glutathione reduction of NAPKI. So depending on who you ask, the total daily dose of acetaminophen can differ. So the one that, you know, we ultimately really care about is the FDA's recommendation, which remains at four grams daily. But Johnson & Johnson, back, you know, several years ago, voluntarily reduced the total daily dose on their over-the-counter labeling to three grams daily, sort of as a CYA move, if you know what I'm saying. The American Liver Foundation recommends limiting it to three grams per day, avoiding or limiting use in our patients drinking more than three um, alcoholic beverages per day, avoiding or reducing the dose in hepatic disease. So I think this is a common um, misunderstanding as well. So true hepatic disease and cirrhosis versus something like hepatocellular carcinoma or other forms, liver mets. I've heard um, providers say, well, my patient has mets to the liver, so I can't use acetaminophen. That's really not true. So sort of helping them to differentiate um, between those two. And then unclear based on the FDA advisory panel kind of where to go from here. I'll jump in on this one because um, this I find very interesting. This was looking at healthy, normal people, and the researchers noticed that when people were getting their Vicodin or their Lortab, their liver enzymes went up, and they thought, holy moly, this is the opioid causing this. So they did this randomized controlled trial where they looked at three they looked at different opioid doses, placebo, and just plain acetaminophen and the plain opiate, and guess what? It was the acetaminophen that did it. Oops. So, Yikes. And placebos on the far left. All righty. Who's up next? Yes, right here in the middle, the lady in the blue. Here comes uh, Jessica. What category do you want, ma'am? Analgesics for 200? Pharmacology? Yes. Okay. 
This topical adjunctive analgesic acts locally by blocking sodium channels and is used to treat neuropathic pain such as post-herpetic neuralgia. What is lidocaine? There you go. Well, lidocaine, sure. I see we have a new lidocaine patch on the market now. It's well, my From our key. hotel keys. Does anyone know how to say it, by the way? Zetlido, Z-T-Lido? I would imagine anyway? Z-T-Lido. I don't know. We'll have to stop by the booth and find out. Yeah. I'm just going to say the new topical lidocaine patch. Okay. That's how I'm going to represent <laughs> I don't get it. The one on my one, hotel key. It's only 1.8%. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. When you just want a little bit of lidocaine love. Just, you know you just, I mean? we need just a little baby dose. Baby dose. <laughs> Sprinkle of lidocaine. So we know that lidocaine is a topical anesthetic, class 1B antiarrhythmic. It works by blocking sodium channels and through inhibition of the acid-sensing ion channels. We know it's available over-the-counter in variable strengths, uh, ranging from 0.5 to 4%, and prescription 5%, and now we said 1.8%? Yep. Yeah. So these are some of the names you're probably familiar with in terms of the -the over-the-counter products and then the prescription product plus the one that we don't exactly know how to say. So the 5% patch can be applied directly to an area of post-herpetic neuralgia pain. No more than three patches concurrently, and it's recommended to do 12 hours on, 12 hours off. But interestingly, there's 700 milligrams of lidocaine in a lidoderm patch, and you only use about 44 milligrams that first 12 hours. And then every subsequent 12-hour period, you use a smidge less, so 44 or 43. So actually, my hospice patients will put that sucker on and leave it on for three days straight. And there's probably even enough drug to last in there for five full days. So if somebody's got, you know, okay liver function, we rock and roll and just leave it on for three days straight. So it's not FDA label approved for that, but um, it's stood us in pretty good stead. And you had reached out to some of the OTC manufacturers to see if that was true of the OTC products as well. They were a little uh, more less willing to divulge. Yeah, I asked for medical affairs, and, they, and the chickie on the phone who sounded like she was 12 said, I can answer any question you have. I was like, no, I, I really want to talk to medical affairs like a pharmacist or a doctor. And no, no, I've got this. So I said, okay, can you tell me about the pharmacokinetics and how much drug is in the patch and what's the release mechanism and how many milligrams per hour release? And she's like, that's proprietary. I'm not telling you. So, <laughs> Fine. I hope you get hemorrhoids. So there. <laughs> Speaking of lidocaine, best thing in the world for hemorrhoids, a little extra tip here, value-added program here. Are you ready for this? You're going to want to write this down. you got to find a compounding pharmacist who can make a rectal rocket. And you get a rectal, it's a, the mold, suppository mold, looks like a rocket ship. It's got a pointy part right here, and then it goes in, there's a little, and there's a flange on the end, like the, the, the business end of the rocket ship, so to speak. And it's 2% lidocaine and 2% hydrocortisone. You insert it, and the little flange keeps it right there at the, at the rectum, so it doesn't really go completely inside. And it's, it lasts for like six or seven hours. It takes your body that long to melt through, and the flange just falls off in your underwear. But one of those Q12 times three... Hemorrhoids are gone with the wind. Isn't there one that has an addition of, like, um, some calcium channel blocker as well? Are you thinking about, like, maybe um, diltiazem for... I've heard of diltiazem, too, but I would would probably just do the lidocaine and hydrocortisone. Sometimes. All right, who's up next? How about here, the gentleman in the flowery shirt? Alex? Where are we going? Right Right over here. Raise your hand. What category, sir? Monitoring for 100. This adverse effect of most opiates is the most commonly experienced. This does not subside with continued use. 
What is opioid-induced constipation? You've got that one. Right. So uh, we know that that is the only one that does. We don't develop tolerance to, but we could not not include the others. So um, we have a wonderful chart up here of the other potential side effects that could happen, and most of these patients will develop tolerance to, or we can appropriately treat with other medications, just like we can treat the constipation. So it's the, the drugs of choice for treating the opioid-induced constipation. Bonus question, there's not really a reward for it. I just I'll throw that out there. Sorry? Well, that Movantic wouldn't be my first choice, no. So Miralax or an osmotic laxative or a stimulant laxative, something that's going to counteract the effect of the opioid, right? The opioid's going to cause the bowel to slow down. We want to stimulate the bowel to start moving again. So something that we can stimulate the bowel to so who? Well, if they're on chronic opioids, I do. Yes. Yes. So who would you send an S? So the S has been voted off the island, just so you know. Head-to-head studies looking at Senna versus Senna with Docusate. The Docusate just makes everything kind of a red-hot mess, right? Yes, Jessica? it does. So just use plain old Senna, although I do like polyethylene glycol. In my population, our population of hospice and palliative care patients, often they don't have the strength to get down at least four ounces of fluid to mix the, the peg with. But other than that, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. All righty. Who's up next? Oh, did, yeah, okay. Sorry, I want to make sure he got his gift card. Okay. Uh, pharmacology, please, 100. Pharmacology for 300. Opioids such as morphine bind to this receptor to alter their perception of pain. What is the mu receptor? Yeah, which one of the 25? No, I'm kidding. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to give you this. Just take you get an extra Amazon gift card for that. Two cards for that one, boy. <laughs> So this chart here shows in the far left column the effect, so things like analgesia, respiratory depression, GI, sedation, diuresis. In the next column is the receptor affected, so mu, kappa, or delta are the three that we're concerned with when it comes to opioids. The agonist effect, so if given an agonist, what happens in regard to that effect? And then the same for the antagonist. So you can see, obviously, when given a... A mu kappa or delta agonist, we can experience analgesia. A mu agonist will decrease respiratory drive, so resulting in respiratory depression. We'll de in keeping with our constipation discussion, so if given a mu agonist, GI, um, the whole gastrointestinal system kind of slows down, so decreasing transit and some of the other effects there. The one that's Kind of interesting now that more and more of the kappa opioid receptor agonists are being studied is diuresis. And I think that's something that, you know, certainly in pharmacy school or residency I didn't learn much about. But some of these kappa agonists can cause diuresis and resulting um, adverse effects due to that. So that's kind of an interesting one. And then this just shows the various receptor affinities of all of these different opioid agonists, antagonists, partial agonists. So you can see that our, our usual strong opioids, so morphine, methadone, fentanyl, are the, have the highest receptor affinity for the mu receptor. And then one that's a little bit different um, for the kappa receptor, butorphanol, pentazosin, and nalbufene. All righty, who's up next? We're rolling here. And we will call on you if we don't have a volunteer. Let's I know a couple place. people in the audience, too, by name. So 
That's never right. good. Is Jessica, are you here, this young lady? Conversions for 200. Conversions for 200. I don't see anybody jumping in with the 500s here. An appropriate dose of immediate release morphine for breakthrough pain in a patient receiving extended release morphine, 60Q12. So if somebody's on MS Cotton, 60Q12, what would you give for breakthrough? Mm. 15 milligrams of morphine, I gotta immediate move. release. I gotta, how often are you going to give it, just for kicks? Every two to three hours. Okay, it depends on the patient, I think, too. But, yeah, 15 milligrams would be great. In a hospice patient, I would do Q2. In an ambulatory patient, if you even did breakthrough, uh, maybe Q4, for example. So, obviously, we have lots of different routes of administration. We have oral, which is our preferred route, and then the oral transmucosal, whether it's sublingual or buccal, preneural, rectal, and, and even intranasal. Um, when you look at the drugs that we use for breakthrough, you could look at the time to onset. So the more water-soluble the drug, the slower it is to onset. So morphine is the most water-soluble opioid. So it takes a good 30, 40 minutes to really get crackalackin. Peaks probably at about 45 to 60 minutes. So I think an important point from this is, what I, you know, when I talk to hospice nurses and I'll say, how is the breakthrough working? So what I like them to ask is, how is what is your pain rating before you take your dose of breakthrough? And then what is it one hour later? So we all know that a 30% reduction in 30 to 50% reduction in pain is clinically important pain relief, but if a dose of breakthrough is only bringing the pain from a 9 to an 8, that's just not cutting it. So either it's not really opioid-responsive pain or the dose is not high enough. And often, I will advise hospice nurses to ask the prescriber for two different doses, like maybe the MSIR, she talked about 15 milligrams for moderate pain, or MSIR 30 milligrams for severe, severe pain. Uh, just depends. Uh, and then it goes down to being even the most uh, fat-soluble is going to be methadone and fentanyl, which is why fentanyl we have it in six different transmucosal formulations but when you really do a deep dive into the literature I know it is more rapid onset but if you look at clinical trials looking at how the patient rates the pain uh, it's I personally don't think it's really worth the money these are egregiously expensive medications the Actique and the Fentora and the Lazonda uh, I love the editorial written by Mel Davis years ago about Lazonda compared to oromorphine um, so again, we talked about dosing a little bit earlier, but if you're talking about plain old MS content, Oxycontin, oral long actings, generally we do 10 to 15% of the total daily dose. And again, we had the conversation. So if somebody were MS content 30Q12, that would be 60 a day, 10% would be six, 15% would be nine, they're both goofy numbers. So I would either go five milligrams Q234 PRN, and then maybe a separate order for 10. You can't write 5 to 10 Q2 PRN. That's outside of the scope of practice of certainly the patient uh, and even for the nurse, unless you give parameters around that. All right. We've got to get crack a lack in here. We're not even halfway done. Who's up next? Alex, pick on Any somebody. Any takers over here? Come on. Pick somebody, Alex. There are still a lot. There's some 200s, monitoring for 200. That's probably easy. Yep. Oh, I have some volunteers. Okay. okay. You're next. I'm not forgetting. <laughs> Alex, start sizing up your side of the room. I think this guy in the Pain. orange shirt is just looking for trouble. <laughs> Look at that orange shirt. It glows in the dark. Pain neurophys for 500. Whoa. We have bold, a big dog bold. among us. Wowie. A relay station for reception and processing of nociceptive information. What is the thalamus? Look at you. Wow. Good job. Whoo, doggy. So, you know, you get a paper cut, which is the most painful thing in the universe. It's an ICU admission. If you lick an envelope and get a paper cut, right to the ICU. Am I right? 
Oh, my God. Anyway, what happens is you get that paper cut, all those, that inflammatory soup that's released there, that leads to transduction where it changes that mechanical damage into electrical energy. Off we go to the spinal cord. It goes in the spinal cord, past the baton to the second order neurons, and up we go to the thalamus. And then when that neuron reaches the thalamus, then and only then does the brain know, wow, that was about pain. So maybe we should send it to higher areas of the brain by the third order neurons to see what we're going to do about it. So I'm going to send it to the somatosensory cortex to figure out where did that come from, the prefrontal cortex, motor planning, uh, the amygdala, the emotional, should we cry about it for a while, um, and so forth and so on. So it's, it's good to have a plan. Very good. Where's my mouse? Here we go. All right, Alex, who's on your side? I'm going to blue. We'll stick with pain neurophysiology 100, though. All right. <laughs> This would be a good time to disclose that they don't actually get harder as you go along. It was kind of random. A myelinated large diameter fiber that transmits sharp, well-localized pain. What is that? A delta? Very good. Exactly. So we've got, yeah, that was, that's a hard one. So the A beta fiber transmits info about touch. The A delta and the C fiber transmit information about pain. Um, and the A delta fiber is you know, going to be larger. It's myelinated. It's like when you get that paper cut, even before you can utter your expletive of choice, it hits and it's like ba-boom. So it's like the A delta fiber and hot behind it is the C fiber, bringing that burning, stinging, buzzing, continued information about the pain. All right, Jessica, how about your side of the room? I saw another hand earlier. Does that person want to raise their hand again before I come choose? Who does not want $5 on Amazon? I mean, that is like yeah. found money. Over here, Alex. I'll take conversions. Conversions for how much, dude? Uh, 300. 300, okay, let's do it. A patient whose post-op pain requires 60 milligrams of parenteral morphine per day would require this total daily dose of oral morphine per day to achieve the same degree of pain control. That's a lot of parenteral morphine. Let's see what he says here. He says 180. It is. So it is about a one to three. Although I have to tell you, um, speaking of OP conversion calculation, people have been asking me, and yes, this meeting is premiering the second edition of my book on conversions. But if you stop by my booth, which is T8 by registration, I've got this cool laminated card, and I have actually updated the conversion um, table to, to account for the better data that we now have, which is amazing. Um, so this is the new data right here on my awesome card. So to make hydromorphone fit into things, remember the old card said 1.5 milligrams of parenteral was 7.5 milligrams of oral, which would give you 1.5 milligrams of parenteral hydromorphone, and we had 30 here. It was a 20 to 1 conversion. But now we have excellent data from MD Anderson, Akila Reddy, who is smarter than all of us put together. And actually, when you go from IV dilated to oral morphine, you really only multiply by about 10 or 11. So to make the chart work, and because people have always argued about with the IV to oral morphine, is it one to three or one to two, I split the diff. So, you know, okay, in my heart of hearts, when I'm doing something like this man just answered, I probably still multiply by three, but really it's a shade less now to make the whole chart work. But if you stop by my thing, I'll give you one. Okay, who's up next? Jessica, got any willing volunteers over there? How about a back row bomber back there? You think you're safe back there? Like everybody at church takes the last pew, right? Oh, no. We know where you are. How about the guy in the red shirt on the aisle? Nobody wears red to my lectures anymore, dude. 
You got to be careful about and wearing stripes? bright colors. Oh man, bright colors. We're gonna even find the first you. year students know avoid stripes. You want to do it? Pain terminology three hundred. Okay. A psychotherapeutic approach that addresses dysfunctional emotions, maladaptive behaviors, and cognitive processes and contents through a number of goal-oriented, explicit, systematic procedures. Got any thoughts? Give us a guess. What is cognitive behavioral therapy? Look at you. Very good. Who's got this category? So um, targeting pain by ways other than just medications can be very effective, right? So if we look at those different things and target them and help people make other lifestyle changes and address anxiety, depression, you know, stress and worry, that can also help control their underlying pain as well. So it's something to definitely keep in mind and utilize as you're treating your patients to look at more, you know, whole person, what all things can we add to this person's care plan to really effectively manage their pain. So it also, you know, provides education for the patients because I've, I've run across a lot of people, um, my patients, that don't understand there's so many other things that involve or affect pain and how they experience their pain. So this CBT can help them yeah. understand what else is affecting their pain, and then they can become aware of what's affecting their pain and then start to apply different coping skills. Alex and I were talking last night about the apps that you can get on your phone, like Calm, for example. And I saw an ad for Calm this Headspace. morning on TV. Yeah. Breathe is another one. All right. Who's up next? Oh, oh yay, Sarah's going to try again. I have to redeem myself. <laughs> Let's do conversions for 400. I love it. My favorite category. <laughs> a patient whose pain is well controlled on extended release morphine 200Q12 would be converted to this strength transdermal fentanyl per commonly used clinical dosing guidelines, not the innovator product guideline, and assuming the patient has a normal body habitus. 200. Very good. Exactly. 200 mics every 72 hours. So we know that fentanyl is about 75 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Um, 100 milligrams of, you know, stick with me here, people. 100 milligrams of oral morphine a day then would be about a 1 milligram or 1,000 mics of fentanyl per day. And transdermal and IV are the same because obviously transdermals, unless you're weird and you eat it, is really a parenteral dosage formulation. So if we say 60 milligrams of oral morphine a day, that would be 0.6 milligrams or 600 mics of fentanyl. If you take that 600 mics and divide it by 24 hours, it works out to be about 25 mics an hour. So this is the work of um, several researchers showing 60 milligrams of oral morphine a day is about 25 mics per hour. But boy, that just screams to go down lower. So this is... Um, Breitbart's work looking at if you just use the two to one, you take the total daily oral morphine dose or the equivalent from some other opioid and you divide that in half, that's your mics per hour of transdermal fentanyl. Of course, you've got to be careful uh, to make sure that they meet the definition per the FDA of opioid tolerant, which is somebody who's been using 60 milligrams or more a day of oral morphine or the equivalent for at least a week, which begs the question, why do we have a 12 mic patch? Um, you're not supposed to start someone on a 12 mic patch, so really it's it's for splitting the hair if you don't want to go up a full 25. But uh, the Scottish palliative care guidelines say go ahead and use the 12, but not in this country. All right. Who's up next? 
Anybody want to go next? All right, Alex, pick somebody. Orange, do you want to go? Sure. Which one do you want to do? Monitoring for 200? Okay. This mnemonic is preferred for assessing a pain complaint. And you can use any one you want. I think the answer is the one I like. But do you have a mnemonic that helps you remember all the elements of symptom analysis? Well, why don't you hit me with the elements of symptom analysis? If I say, oh, my God, my shoulder's killing me, what are the things you would ask? Okay, so the one that I use is PQRSTU. Whose is this, yours or Jessica? Uh, Jessica's, I believe. Okay. It yeah. does, it's okay. So whatever one works the best, really, is the one that you should use, but this one is defined up here on the screen. So asking open-ended questions about what makes their pain better or worse, what does it feel like, where is it located, um, are you feeling radiation? I think that one's hard to ask an open-ended question about. Um, what's the severity of it? Is it, does it act, you know, how does it act during the day? Is the morning worse for you than the evening or, or vice versa? And then what, what does this pain do to your body that makes you not, you know, how does it affect your activities of daily living? So what aren't you able to do because of the pain? And those are kind of the key questions we want to ask. But there are a lot of other mnemonics out there. Just use the one that you're the most comfortable with that gets you the information that you need to effectively treat someone's pain. Definitely. All right, Jessica, somebody on your side of the room. There's a lot still left on pain neurophys. My favorite, second favorite category. <laughs> All right, how do you feel about picking a category? I just happen to stop right next to you. Uh, how about monitoring for three, please? Okay, let's do it. I would like to control my pain enough to work full-time and still have enough energy to do fun activities on the weekend with my family. This is one of those eight elements of symptom analysis. What is this? Which element that Jessica just talked about is this getting to? Well, actually, you build on it. But. Severity? No. Close, though. How about the lady next to you? I don't know. Close. It is goal setting. So, you know, we talk about, um, I'm sorry, Jessica, it's no, It's okay. So we, we need to find out what is a good goal for them. And one of the ways I do this for my patients um, when, they, when they completely understand the mnemonic rating scale is knowing that we might not be able to get your pain to zero, right? Um, what would be a level that you think that you could still function the way that you want to be able to function? So that's where that self-identified threshold comes into play. What is their threshold of pain that they think they can tolerate? Um, and then the peg up there is the perceived efficacy of goal, of goal setting. So asking questions about what do they hope to do? What is the pain preventing them from doing? And then really solidifying those so that those can be your targets for your pain control. Um, and so then this just kind of kind of, yeah, more of explains it out here. for you. And then, again, comfort function goals. So asking them, what are, what are you hoping for? A lot of the times in my patient population I hear, I want to be able to play with my grandchildren. I don't want to just be able to sit in a chair and watch them play. I want to be able to interact with them. So then that is our goal. We try to get them to a place where they can interact. And then remembering there are some objective things that we can actually measure, but a lot of pain management is subjective. So really working with your patient so that they understand the difference between the two. Good. All right. Who's our next volunteer? 
Got lots of $5 gift cards left. Yeah, right here. All right. What category do you want? Monitoring for 300. Uh, we have 300. How about four? Oh, sorry, it looks blacked out to me. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. These are considered standard of medical care for monitoring aberrant drug behavior in patients using opiate therapy. Oh, um, are PDMPs and urine drug screens? Okay. So any one of those would be great. (laughs) Okay. There are also other risk tools that you can utilize up here as one that's, oh, sorry, I forgot to give you your card. That's the important part. Here you go. Um, <clears throat> so the opioid that one too. <laughs> I want to keep them. Um, the opioid risk tool is an interview that you can, you can do with a patient um, and then monitoring the outcomes to make sure that they are, you know, actually complying with what we're supposed to be doing. Great. All right. We're coming down the home stretch here. So the, the light-colored ones are the ones that are still available. So we have a four and five left in pain terminology, 500 for conversions, 500 for monitoring, four and five for analgesic pharmacology, and then two, three, and 400 for neurophys. And remembering that really there's not a difference in green shirt difficulty between the numbers. Monitoring. Monitoring for five. This metabolite would be expected to be in the urine drug screen of a person using oxycodone. So maybe this is a $500 point one. Yes, I think it might be. This might be a two-carter. <laughs> Want to take a guess? Oh, are you passing, sir? If not, I have a very excited phone person right here. Okay. Oh, phone a friend. Oh, she's, I have some, she's what's oxymorphone? What's oxymorphone, she says. Yes. And look at Very that. Very good. Yes. Dang. So it's important to understand how these medications are metabolized because you may see these things in a urine drug screen, and if you don't know what they turn into, you're going to think your patient's doing something wrong. Yeah. This slide's going to be available after our session. There's a lot going on there, but it'll be available for you guys for a reference afterwards. Totally. All right, Jessica, anybody in your neck of the woods over there? How about the man in the check shirt, second row, right next to you? I like your socks. Oh, thanks. He's got cool socks on, too? What's with men in the socks lately? Wow. All right, what do you want to do, check? Pain neurophysiology for 400. Oh, my Lord, I love it. Free nerve endings that are activated by noxious stimuli. He passes. Anybody else want to take a shot? Anybody else want to scoop that one up? Where, who starts with an N. No receptors. receptors. Very good. So obviously we have receptors for thermal, mechanical, chemical, and I'm not sure what the silent or sleeping ones are, but we have lots of different nociceptive receptors. And we just talked about the different neurons. All right, who's next? How about that side of the room? You all think you're off the hook? Yeah, you're way over there, but I can still see you. There's a lady in a red jacket even over there. She's thinking, oh, my God. And she's looking to her left. No, honey, I meant you. <laughs> Anybody on that side of the room? Pick one, Jessica. I see someone right here. How do you feel about that? Oh, she's going after Big Red. There we go. Okay. Um, how about analgesic pharmacology for 400? Okay. 
This group of analgesics work by inhibiting prostaglandin-mediated irritation of the nociceptive receptor. It used to be my favorite drugs in the world, but as I get older, not so much. Oh, the other red wants to jump in behind me, <laughs> Jessica. Insects? Yeah. One of the insects. Very good. Ooh. So m- most of us in this room know the metabolic pathway of NSAIDs. So they block the cyclooxygenase or the COX enzyme, preventing the conversion of arachidonic acid to prostaglandins, prostacyclin, and thromboxane, which are responsible for pain and inflammation, but also a variety of beneficial effects, which helps explain some of its adverse effects. So things like GI cytoprotection and kidney function and regulating normal cellular processes. So we know that the NSAIDs can be classified based on their COX selectivity. So on this slide, the further left you go is increasing COX-2 selectivity. The further right you go is increasing COX-1 selectivity. So we know that the more COX-2 selective in terms of adverse effects, the more uh, cardiovascular events we're going to see versus the more COX-1 selective the agent, the more gastrointestinal adverse events we're going to see. Although we know that all NSAIDs, regardless of selectivity, you know, affect both COX-1 and COX-2. So no matter how COX-2 selective, it can still cause GI events, and no matter how COX-1 selective, it can still cause cardiovascular adverse events. So just something to keep in mind. It's about relative selectivity. So I think one of our biggest concerns when it comes to NSAIDs is really the GI adverse effects that can occur. So some risk factors that would put our patients at an increased risk for developing NSAID-induced GI bleed or uh, perforation, so things like prior peptic ulcer disease, prior NSAID-related GI complications are elderly patients. If they're on something like a corticosteroid or an anticoagulant that increases their risk for bleeding at baseline, obviously they're going to be at an even higher risk when we throw an NSAID on board as well. If they're on high doses, combinations of NSAIDs, so you know various different NSAIDs, and how can we prevent it? So if they, so H. pylori is an independent and synergistic risk factor for GI-related complications. So if they are positive for H. pylori, obviously addressing that. But then we can do some risk mitigation strategies in terms of adding a proton pump inhibitor, which unfortunately has risks of its own when used long-term, or also something like misoprostol. NSAID-associated cardiovascular risks appear to be COX-selective associated. Like I said, the more COX-2-selective, the more likely we are to see these. Um, You know, potentially we can see hypertension and increased edema. Pathogenesis, we can kind of skip this one. And then in terms of the recommendations for acute musculoskeletal pain, we can see where the NSAIDs fit here. So kind of the non-selectives are really third line along with the COX-2 selective agents. Very good. I see Jessica has a victim. What do you want, sir? Um, Do we have pain terminology for 500? Uh, We do. A primary chronic neurobiologic disease with genetic, psychosocial, and environmental factors influencing its development and manifestations. And half this, this meeting might be is a two-parter about... too. Um, I heard it over here. Do you want to pass and give it to this person over here? Is it addiction? There you go. There you go. Very good. 
So we have to be kind of quick here, girls. Which who has so, this category? So it's just you know, addiction is different than dependence, right? It's addiction is you cannot do anything about your your want to have these medications, no matter what it takes to get them. If someone's on opioids long term, their body will become dependent on it. So making sure we understand the difference between the two and addiction is a chronic disease. Right. Alrighty. Alex, you have a victim? We have two, Anyone three, over here? four, five left. One minute a question. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Which one? All right, I'm gonna try analgesic pharmacology and hope I don't screw this one up. <laughs> okay. Last but not least for pharmacology. This opioid distributes, it's my favorite in the world. That is very it's large. Chapter hint. six in my book. This opioid distributes to two body compartments, has a long terminal elimination half life due to protein binding and high lipid solubility. It's 60 years old. It was developed in Germany. In this country, it's the R and the S and Antimer, the racemic mixture. It's beautiful. It comes as a liquid concentrate, 10 per one. It interacts with every freaking drug in the known universe. <laughs> Everybody knows the answer. I'm thinking methadone, but I never yes. prescribe it. Yes, thank you, God. It's methadone. <laughs> so I, I don't know who had this one. I think it was Alex. But uh, Alex, anything you want to point in on this? Just the, you know, I I don't know if you mentioned that in that diatribe about methadone, but just the highly variable half life. So this says it ranges from seven to fifty nine. Usually, it's an average of about twenty four. So that's why you know this is not something for the novice prescriber or healthcare provider in terms of you know initiating a patient on methadone. You really want to make sure you know what you're doing when it comes to that, just due to the the yeah. risk in that initial dosing period. So this just shows the one conversion method in the literature. So the current daily oral morphine equivalent dose in the left-hand column, the conversion ratio, morphine to methadone, and then the conversion factor. But I recommend a much more conservative, which is on the flip side of my awesome card. All right. We got shameless 30 seconds plug. per question. I am a shameless hussy. <laughs> I didn't say hussy. I it. said a shameless plug. Anyone in Baltimore, they call me Mary McMethadone. How, how do you feel about it? Pain terminology 400. Pain term for 400. Rounding out that category. General term for a state of spinal neuron excitability. I'll have to pass. Going to pass? Phone a friend? Anybody want to give a hint? Wind up. I'll take wind up, sure. So obviously, I don't know whose category, whose category this was here, but we know we have peripheral sensitization, which was sort of like when your mother used to say, you're plucking my last nerve. And that, you know, all that additional information coming from the periphery to the spinal cord leads to central sensitization. And we do exhibit neuroplasticity, so we can, the nervous system can change its own functional status. All right, we have three left. Neurophys for two and 300, and conversions for 500. Who wants to round out the conversions category? Oh, come on. Who wants to do conversions 500? Shall I show you the question, and then you can decide? An opioid-naive patient with advanced cancer abruptly complains of acute onset, incredibly severe pain, may receive this amount of parenteral morphine in the first 10 minutes he presents in the ER. Who would like to take a stab at this one? And I am quoting the Cleveland Clinic guidelines here. Come on, you, there are not that many guesses you can make. What do you think, lady? She says 5 to 10. Um, I would have said 10. 
Uh, and the protocol that I really like and I talk about in my book is one milligram every minute up to 10 minutes, and then you give it a five-minute respite and you do two more cycles. The important thing is you want to do it till the pain is reduced about two to four points. You don't want it until they're like fabulously controlled because you're dose stacking and then you may kill them. And you have to be at the bedside. Yeah. The you can't just write an order for the nurse to do. All right. Pain Neurophys for 200. Let's see who wants this one. The step during which a noxious stimulus is changed by the body into the action potential. And I actually mentioned it before. Remember, you get the paper cut. One you right get an in inflammatory middle. soup. Yes, ma'am. Transduction. What is transduction? Yay. So awesome. transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. And this slide was made by my friend, Dr. Glick, and he took off the most important step because I think the most important step. So if you go back here, transduction is changing that. Um, damage into electrical energy and action potential. Conduction is actually slipping along the A delta and the C fiber. Transmission is where you pass the baton from the first to the second, and the second to the third neurons. And then perception is when the thalamus figures it out. And the most important step, which he didn't put on the slide, and we argue about it for probably 10 years now, is modulation. So it's where your body kicks in with the antinociceptive system, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, and our last remaining minute of the program here. 300 for neurophys. Any takers? And Kaplan's dynorphins and beta endorphins. Oh, my. What are these suckers? What are they? Oh, back left. You want to just shout it out? Yes, endogenous opioids. Endogenous opioids, yeah. And there are a bunch of them, and this is why, this is what works through Thank modulation. You. Thank goodness. So I'd like to... My assistants, Jessica and Erica, uh, and uh, Alex Erica. and uh, Jessica. Who's Erica? Uh, Erica's my assistant. Something you need to tell me? Uh, it's my new daughter. So. I have a sister. Thank you 